Tonight, it's kind of an odd topic, reckless love. <laughs> and, and I think when we, you first hear that, we think of all kinds of dysfunctional things in the world, and, and probably many things out in the world that would be called reckless love are dysfunctional. Um, you know, poor boundaries and attachments and, you know, attaching to fantasies rather than real life, you know, be a whole, be a whole Dharma talk, just all the ways that one can be dysfunctional in love. And, you know, I could probably spend hours just talking about ways I have been dysfunctional in love, you know. But what, what's actually inspired this talk, strangely enough, was the lyric of a song, um, about a week and a half ago, I was on a retreat through work, um, a four-day retreat. And I, and some of you may know I work at a Catholic school. So this was a, a Catholic retreat called Kairos, which was uh, very transformative for the kids. It was really a privilege to watch all the transformation that happened with the kids. But um, one of my colleagues, before giving a talk, he played this song, and, and I was struck by the lyrics of it. So let me just read you the lyrics. Over the, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, I couldn't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And that really struck me, because it struck me that there was something profoundly archetypal there, um, and, and not wholly connected just to the Christian context. Obviously, that, that, that is a Christian song. Um, it's funny, you know, in, in Western religions, they they reify the sacred as personal. Um, and the advantage of that is that one can form a love relationship with the personal, uh, much in the same way as the, the bhakti relationship with Krishna in Hinduism. Um, the, the dysfunction, of course, is of a personal god is for people who haven't worked through their stuff, then, then you know, the god is essentially a kind of parent substitute, and they project all their unresolved parent stuff onto their onto God. And you know, in practice, when they're talking about God, they're really talking about their their you know dysfunctions in their family of origin. Um, Buddhism, many of the Western religions, Eastern religions rather, don't personify God. Um, don't necessarily even reify God at all, or reify the sacred. Um, but then, the you know the 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 problem with that sometimes is it becomes kind of an abstract head relationship. Um, there's a lot of Buddhism in America that's very head centered, um, and and not very grounded in the body. And so. This reckless love of the sacred. I want to read another passage. This is a passage from the New Testament, the Christian New Testament. It's from the Gospel of St. Mark. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, 
A young man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have observed since my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you have, and give the proceeds to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At that saying, the young man's countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so something about that, you know, that recklessness of, you know, Go sell everything you have and follow me. You know, we we hear this refrain throughout the Christian Bible, you know, in the in the New Testament, the the disciples, you know, people walking away from their jobs, walking away from their families to follow Jesus. Um and we have to think that something was similar in the in the the first original band of followers that the Buddha had as well. Um that particular man, we, we hear nothing of him in the in the New Testament, that, that particular young man. It it's always kind of funny to just contemplate him. I've 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 read a little bit about what, you know, Bible scholars have speculated about that that fellow. But we know that in the decades after Jesus, Christianity spread like wildfire through the Palestinian region and many people became Christian. Um and so it's conceivable that guy was still alive, you know. 20 or 30 years later, that he would have joined the Christian movement. And, you know, it was common in the Christian movement that all the property would be shared in common anyway. So he would have given away, you know, like he would have wound up giving away everything he had anyway. And you can almost imagine like the regret that this person would have had later in life, you know, like hearing the disciples talk about how they were followers of this person and thinking I could have been a follower of this person, but I walked away, you know. And so that that's just an interesting, uh, you know, it it's an interesting way. How could I say? It's an interesting response to reckless love, you know, like this is too much. I'm going to walk away from it, you know. And then then do we regret that? So how do we understand this idea of overwhelming reckless love of the sacred, say in Buddhism? Because, you know, in Christianity, there's a, there's a God out there directing this love to us. You know, so how do we understand it in Buddhism? Well, Buddhism has these, these ideas, um, the four illimitable minds, the four mind states without limit. And these are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These are, these are qualities, inherent qualities of Buddha nature. Um, And they're called illimitable minds or mind states without limit because following any one of those authentically brings us beyond the limits of ego. If we were to follow love fully, if we were to follow compassion or even joy or equanimity fully, um, it would bring us beyond the limits of ego. And it's easy to say, bring us beyond the limits of ego. You know, (laughs) it's easy to say that. But... Anything that brings me beyond the limits of ego 
completely explodes my my experience of the world and my understanding of the world completely explodes anything I have as a value system. Um, there's there's a, a a kind of recklessness in that compared to you know whatever safety or comfort ego has constructed for itself. You know. And it's a very interesting question, and I don't know one that um, Buddhism actually talks about that much. Cramp in my leg. Um, What is the relation of Buddha nature to ego consciousness? You know, and is it is it similar to the way that Jung talks about the relation of the self to the ego? You know. does the Buddha nature have compassion and love for us, for for ego, you know? Um, and of course, that would be a dangerous love, a, a love that, that tends toward the destruction of ego, you know? Um, there's a great quote, it's not on the quote sheet, but a great quote by William Blake, eternity is in love with the productions of time, you know? Um, I will say in meditation, I have experienced, you know, tremendous love. I can't say, I don't necessarily, you know, can't say like where that love is coming. And I don't know if it's from higher self, from ego nature, from something out there, you know, it's hard to say. Um, but, but tremendous love is a feature of the sacred and there is there is something um, both comforting and terrifying about it at the same time, you know. Now, a related question is, how can we be more reckless in compassion and love? You know, not not in a in a dysfunctional way, but in a in a totally healthy functional way. What are the appropriate risks for us to be taking? You know, just think about it. What What's an appropriate risk that you haven't taken yet that, that would be totally appropriate for you to take in love or compassion, in kindness, in generosity, you know? Sometimes, the, many times, the risks are along the lines of a, a deeper level of vulnerability. You know, it, it's funny, love, love by its very nature, love of any kind is ultimately dangerous, you know, and, um, you know, if it's real, it's dangerous, you know, I mean, some, sometimes people, you know, make these kind of peace treaties, well, I, I won't ask you hard questions, you don't ask me hard questions, and then that becomes stale very quickly, you know, that kind of thing. If something is really, you know, it has to be edgy to be authentic, you know. And what are ways that we can be more edgy, you know, in, again, in totally healthy, balanced ways to be more edgy in the ways that we show compassion and love in the world? And in what way can we, you know, be 
show a more authentic edge or a more vulnerable edge as we move through the world. In Buddhism, we have this idea of enlightenment. Um, in fact, one of the words for it is is nirvana. You know, nirvana is not a not a place like heaven. Nirvana is a state, and and literally the word nirvana it comes from the the Sanskrit word to blow out or extinguish. And the image is that the the individual self is blown out the way you would blow out the flame of a candle. Um, again, a very poetic image, and but um, a terrifying experience. And in some sense, enlightenment is simply a yes to all things. Which again, phrased that way, sounds awfully poetic and lovely. A yes to all things. You know, until you realize it's all things. You know, and that there's something... In some ways, it is a, a deeply um, disquieting and disorienting yes to all things, you know. So, I'll read a poem. Actually, I can just recite the poem. It's, it's by E.E. E. Cummings, and I think it's one of the, the most profound things said on the topic of love. A very short poem. Love is a place, and in this place of love move with brightness of peace, all places. Yes is a world, and in this world of yes live skillfully curled, all worlds. With that, I'll share the quote sheet. Let's see. Pass this around. So at the top, I have the, the lyrics of the song. And I have, have the poem by E. Cummings, and I have the... the Passage from the Gospel according to Mark. Oh, I have to share this with the... I'm remiss not sharing it with the the Zoomies. Here you go. All right, quote sheet shared with the Zoomies. A Nepalese saying, great love and great achievement involve great risk. Very simple. Oh, Mike, uh, yeah. we don't, I don't have permission. Oh. Maybe it's just me. It's a bit blocked. Oh, interesting. Um, let me... Me too. All right, hold on. Let me go back to that. Maybe I didn't... Uh, all right. Um... Ah, Yes. Okay, try again. Okay, perfect, thanks. Okay, sorry about that. It's okay. 
Okay, now get this. Okay, get the chat off. All right. Okay, sorry about that. Permissions. Michelangelo said, The greatest danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. (laughs) From his contemporary, St. Ignatius of Loyola. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek rest, to labor and not ask for reward, except to know that I am doing your will. And even that, just that one line, to give and not to count the cost. You know, what a wonderful description of reckless love right there. St. Ignatius also said, go forth and set the world on fire. From a a Neo-Confucian Buddhist scholar um, from the Ming Dynasty, Oye Jusi, the essential nature of dangerous paths or problems is based on the potential for realization of being as is. You know, any danger in the world is, is reflecting the fundamental danger of the ego loss in realization. Albert Hubbard said, any idea that is not dangerous is not worthy of being called an idea at all. You know, perhaps the same could be said of a Dharma talk. I don't know. Um, Tagore said, let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Uh, this is from Richard Wilhelm, the translator of the I Ching. This is his summary of commentaries on hexagram 51. When a person has learned within their heart what fear and trembling mean, they are safeguarded from any terrors produced by outside influences. This is the spirit that must animate all leaders and rulers, a profound inner seriousness from which all outer terrors glance off harmlessly. From Sri Nisgardata. The search for reality is the most dangerous of all undertakings, for it destroys the world in which you live. Walter Anderson says, Our lives improve only when we take chances, and the first and most difficult risk we can take is to be honest with ourselves. Peter Drucker said, The most serious mistakes are not being made as a result of wrong answers. The truly dangerous thing is asking the wrong questions. I think he might be talking in a business context there, but it, it also works in a spiritual context. Sagil Rinpoche said, The modern faddish idea that we can always keep our options open and so never, n- never need commit ourselves to anything is one of the greatest and most dangerous delusions of our culture and one of ego's most effective ways of sabotaging our spiritual search. Tara Brock said, there's a power in sharing difficult truths. Letting your vulnerability be seen by a trusted, attentive other can unravel a lifetime of shame. Naming painful feelings without blame can deepen and strengthen mutual attunement and compassion. Relationships become more vibrant. Finding the courage to take the risk to speak what is true enlarges you. You become more real to yourself, more intimate with others. 
David White said, this was in a, a seminar during the pandemic, you risk giving in the wrong way. And usually we only learn about this after we've given in the wrong way for a really long time and we find ourselves depleted or even ill for what's occurred. So catching yourself, walking back into your body and just looking after yourself for a while without turning that experience into resentment against the other person or the people or the organization. Just the act of giving yourself a break, giving yourself some spaciousness and allowing yourself to rest. Too often we give in the wrong way and then we walk off in a huff in the opposite direction and we use just as much energy and resentment as we did and we deplete ourselves even further. Uh, deplete ourselves just as much as being in being disappointed rather than just saying, that didn't work. I need a break. He also wrote in his book, Consolations, the only choice we have as we mature is how to inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance, our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of lost, robustly and fully, or conversely as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gate of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. And finally, Race Mamenikin says in his wonderful book, Rock the Boat, Life is always full of peril, but peril is not what we imagine it to be. We think that peril holds us back. When we hurt, we want to feel safer and more secure in order to be able to take a risk. But life doesn't operate that way. In fact, it's just the opposite. Security and safety come after taking a risk, not before.